When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders to let anyone orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is is a really cool story. It's actually two different stories that are woven together, and it can be easy to, you know, preach or teach on just one of them. But uh, Mark, the gospel writer, intended for both of these stories to be brought together to present a whole picture. It's about one basic thing that we can learn a lot of different applications from. So, this text both asks and answers this question, how can we be patient when we experience suffering? And some of our suffering is is protracted over a long period of time, and, and other times our suffering is acute and it's immediate and it's traumatic, and everything in between. Suffering is hard, and how can we be patient when life falls apart or when we just are ground down into discouragement because of circumstances or health or whatever may be happening, and it seems like God is moving too slow for us. 
And it often does seem that way, right? That, that God surely is for me, right? He's surely for us. And there's times that we just feel like he's not showing up and it's taking forever for maybe our maturity or fighting a sin or physical health or whatever. So how can we be patient and trust God in this hard life? And so we're going to see this question unfold in three stages in our story. First, we're going to see an urgent request. Second, Jesus' slow response. And third, a surprising outcome. Verse 21, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. So what do we know about Jairus. He was a synagogue leader in this town, and so he was well-respected. Everybody knew him. He was very religious, and he taught the Scriptures to God's people. And uh, he would have been very respected uh, in this community. He, he would have been used to, um, you know, giving direction to people, and they follow. You know, he's a, he's a prominent leader in the community. We also know that he has a 12-year-old daughter. We know from Luke's account of the story that this is his only child. So, a 12-year-old daughter that's his only child, and she is so sick that she's at the threshold of death, and he knows it. We don't know what her condition was, but we know that she is about to die. He knows this. And so, he, he leaves his wife and his daughter. Uh, his, so, his wife is there, the mom, uh, trying to, you know, figure out what's going on and try to help, help her daughter, uh, while he goes and finds Jesus. And he falls at his feet, and he's desperate. You know, any parent, uh, any of you who are parents know that there's a certain kind of scream or a cry, you know, that, that cry that's like, okay, this is not a cry of rebellion or squeals of delight or whatever. This is a hurt kind of cry. And I remember uh, my second son, Trenton, uh, crying like this and on the back porch. He came in, this was years ago. And he came in the house holding his hand, and I, and I looked at his hand, and his ring finger was like tilted over to the side. We have a picture of it. I'm not going to show it. Don't worry. We don't want to bring in the janitors and, you know, be cleaning up puke and all that. But it was really gross. And of course, it's just like, what? You know? And so we're trying to figure out what to do, ice, get in the car, hospital, and all the rest. But there's those moments, some of, some of them traumatic, you know, that just hit you. And there's a kind of like a little mini shock factor there. Um, I can't imagine what this dad and what this mom are feeling in this moment. Um, just how desperate they were. Do you think it would have been a struggle for Jairus to remain patient? You know, do you think he's thinking about the virtue of patience in this moment? Probably not. Um, and so we need to think just briefly here, is it okay to want God to hurry things along? Is that okay to want? And the answer is from the Scriptures, yes, it is. It is okay to cry out to God to help me in this situation, uh, rescue my friend from, this, uh, from these circumstances, heal this person. It, it's okay, and it's expected, and, and God wants us to cry out to Him. We see in Psalm 31, verse 2, as an example, turn your ear to me, 
the psalmist cries, come quickly to, to my rescue, be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. And there are voices like this all through the Psalms and other parts of the Bible. Even the very last couple of verses of the Bible are a heart cry to come quickly. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We want Jesus to come and fix it and to bring His heavenly reign where sin and death and suffering is no more. We want that, and it's good to want that. Now, when does this kind of righteous urgency turn into sinful impatience? It can become sinful, of course. Uh, There's a sense in which impatience happens when we live in a broken world and we we want heaven to be here now. Uh, There's this tension of we, we do have God, we do have His presence, we, do, we are saved through faith in Jesus, and we've come alive uh, in Christ spiritually, and yet we still struggle with sin. We still are living in a broken world, but we want heaven now, and so we get impatient. Uh, Christine Chapel, an author and a mom, puts it this way, and, and she kind of exposes something, can put her finger on something deeper in our hearts that's going on. Somewhere in our impatience is the passion we have to be served, to be in control, to be obeyed, to be like God. Pride is our biggest stumbling block to growing in patience, she says. And so, it's this desire to be like God when, it, when it's that sinful aspect of wanting to hurry God along to fix things. I know better than God. And so, we fuss and we get cynical, we withdraw, we demand Oftentimes, this is often where my heart is. Jerry Bridges puts it this way, and this is encouraging. He says that frustrating circumstances don't cause impatience. Rather, they merely provide an opportunity for the flesh to assert itself. The actual cause of our impatience lies within our own hearts and our own attitude of insisting that others around us conform to our expectations. And the reason, now that cuts deep, but the reason that's encouraging is because these circumstances where we're frustrated and we know things should be better, they, they turn sinful and they, and they expose the idols of our heart. They actually surface our inner idols where we're trying to be like God and be other people's Holy Spirits and control the situation ourselves. And that's good because we can repent. It gives us opportunities to name it, to bring it to God, to humble ourselves, and to get right with Him about these things. So, this story invites us to put ourselves in this man's shoes and wrestle with what do we do when it seems like God is just moving so slow. So, the first principle here, you can think of this maybe as a working definition of patience. God-centered patience consists of real lament in response to the brokenness we see and real hope for a better world and a better life, but it keeps God, not self, at the center, and it trusts in God's timing and His ways even when we don't understand, and we don't see the big picture. So, Jairus is leading the way. He gets Jesus moving. There's the entourage. There's the crowds. The disciples are there. So, you can imagine that Jairus is probably a little ways out in front because he's got to show where to go. He's, he's making the most direct route that he possibly can to where his little girl needs help. And so, Jesus is moving one step at a time, step, step, step. And any 
slowing of those steps is going to be a, an immediate threat to Jairus, right? No, 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 don't, don't get in his way. And he's probably out front clearing people out of the way, right? Get, guys, come on, get out of the way. Sirens are blaring, you know, you can imagine what he's doing here. And then suddenly Jesus stops. We're going to see his slow response here. Jesus stops in his tracks, and from Jairus' perspective, it's unclear why or what's going on. In verse 30, we see that he turned around in the crowd, and he asked, who touched my clothes? Now, he may or may not have heard these exact words. We don't know how far away he was. All he knows is that Jesus is stopped, and he turned around, and it's like, wait a minute. No, no, no. Jesus, face back. Come on. Face me. All right. All right. Come on. Let's go. You know, he's frantic at this point. He doesn't really care what kind of conversation is going down, and then maybe he sees that it's about clothes and touching, and it's like, what's going on here? Can you imagine his anxiety in this moment? So Jesus stops. He turns around. He has this conversation, verse 31. Uh, The disciples speak up, and they say, you see the people crowding against you, and yet you can ask, who touched me? And the fact that the disciples are saying this, it really gives voice to the crowds as well, and certainly to Jairus, come on, Jesus, there's somebody dying, you need to help. You're being slow here, we know better than you. And so Jairus is trying to get his attention and move him along. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? And for Jairus, the sum of all his fears had been thrown in his face in this moment. Words can't even express the shock and the disorientation going on. His his blood is running cold. He is seeing and feeling his whole world shattering in slow motion in this moment. He can't think rationally. He's probably bouncing back and forth between denial and and anger, and what, what, did, what just happened, confusion. As the reality of his daughter, his daughter's death starts to sink in, he, he's probably starting to, to condemn himself. Why wasn't I there for my daughter's last moments? My wife is alone, struggling with this situation. I'm not there. And so he's got all these feelings of self-condemnation and anger. Why is this happening? What's going on? Now, I want us to look at, before we see Jesus' response to him, let's look at the messenger's advice to Jairus. Look what he says. Why bother the teacher anymore? That is a statement of resignation, of cynicism. And the question that's put before us in this part of the story is, who is stronger, Jesus or death? Which one of these two is stronger? And if we see Jesus merely as a teacher, as they were, then death wins and Jesus loses. But if Jesus is more than a teacher, if he's in fact the king and the king of kings, then he wins and death loses. And he's going to win this battle. So this is confronting us with the question, who is Jesus really, right? And we have to be confronted with this in our everyday lives. It can be so easy to sort of distill Jesus down to a, an advice giver, a teacher, someone who can help us navigate life, 
give us some wisdom for decisions. And, and he does that. He is a teacher. But if that's all he is, he cannot save us or help us overcome the very enemy that faces us all, which is death. But if he is the king of kings and lord of lords, then we have hope. And death is not our worst enemy, okay? Uh, it's not going to have the last word. A king can command life out of death. And so, who is this Jesus that we're serving? Verse 36, overhearing what they said, here's what Jesus said to him. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now, in that moment, he, he did not say to him, I'm about to raise your daughter from the dead. Okay, so I want you to trust me. I'm about to resurrect her. He doesn't say that. Jairus has no idea that her death is going to be reversed. And yet, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, just believe. And he's not saying just believe in anything, believe what you think, you know, God is like. He's standing right there, believe in me, trust me. You don't understand. It's like, it's in essence like he's saying to Jairus, I know you're going through terror right now, but I want you to take a deep breath and, and do something that, uh, that everything within you is fighting against, and that is to trust me and that I know what I'm doing. You have no idea what's going on, but all is not lost. Trust me, my, do my job is not yet done here. And so the second principle that we can discern from this part of the story is that regardless of whether Jesus shows up and fixes our brokenness now or whether he does it later, he is still on the throne and he is still good. For all who, in, for all who are in Christ, a total reversal of death is coming. Therefore, we can trust him no matter what. All right, now I want to rewind the, ta the tape a little bit uh, and go back to this woman in verse 25 and 26. And so here's what's happening with this woman. A woman was there who had been subject to, to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So this woman had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. This is likely a medical condition, something like a uterine hemorrhage. It's a terrible situation for her. Uh, she suffered a great deal, not only from the disease itself, but from the cures. So she'd go to doctor after doctor and spend her money to, what about this? Second, third, fourth opinions, what about that? Trying everything, and she's broke. And she's not only suffering from the physical malady, but also from disappointment, getting her hopes up and being crushed. And who do I even trust? It's, it's just, it's, it's hard to have a chronic illness like this. Um, it's just difficult, it's debilitating, and it's even hard to communicate to others, you know, what this feels like to have daily pain. And so she's suffering over a protracted amount of time, and she not only has the medical condition and is hurting in all these ways, but she's also religiously considered unclean in this community. Um, someone who has this kind of condition in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Jewish religious system in that day were considered unclean, and so um, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't come into temple, she couldn't go to synagogue, she couldn't worship with God's people, she couldn't touch people, otherwise it would make them unclean for seven days before they could go to synagogue or temple, 
So she couldn't have meals with people. She couldn't hold somebody's baby. She had not received a hug or given a hug to anybody for 12 years. And she is destitute. You could, you could sort of describe her as the living dead. You know, so many aspects of her life is just dead. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And so let's talk about what, what she believed or the, kind of the nature of her, of her faith. And we, we really don't know. We don't see into her heart in this moment, but we have what the Scriptures tell us. We do know that she had heard about him. Word had been getting out by this time. Um, the miracle worker is here. He, we know that he's healed sick people. Uh, he's cast out demons from people. He has even raised uh, people from the dead. And so she's hearing these things, and she said, well, I have nothing to lose by trying this. Okay, but think about how much she risked to get close to Jesus. Remember, anybody she touches is considered immediately unclean. And she has to somehow navigate through this crowd that, that is very dense around Jesus. And she's probably touching all kinds of people along the way. She's risking uh, being found out, being noticed. She's risking Jesus maybe not being able to hear, uh, heal her. And then she's really embarrassed and, and ashamed by exposing herself like that. Um, we also get in a little insight into her mindset in verse 28, where she says, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And so there probably was some superstition, you know, mixed in here. Um, so she has really good, healthy elements of faith, taking great risks to get to Jesus, uh, but also this sort of uh, mechanistic, you know, reduction of just, I just want to get to Jesus to get my healing, and kind of I'll just sort of slink away and disappear, okay? Some superstition there. But the point of this is that although she did have relatively weak faith, she had faith in the right thing. And so our third principle is that what counts is not how strong your faith is, but how strong the object of your faith is. You can have weak faith in Jesus, and that's so much better than a strong faith in anything else. And she had her faith in the right thing. This should be encouraging for us, right? Our hearts are so mixed up. Um, you know, we, we cry out to Jesus, and it's coming from a good place, but we also know we're, we're trying to sort of be God a little bit or um, whatever. You know, we have uh, mixed motives in our own relationship with God. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd, and he asked, who touched my clothes? And so she had, had touched him. She got immediate relief and healing, and she knew it. She knew right then that her 12-year condition had just ended. Verse 32, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done this. When the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So, you know, when Jesus did healings in other stories, uh, a lot of times they would start dancing and praising God and being um, just overjoyed, you know, and very obvious about their joy. Now, she did not respond this way. She hid. She was healed and she hid. Why did she do this? Well, remember that 
For the past 12 years, rejection and shame had dominated her entire life experience. This medical condition had so eroded her sense of dignity and self-worth, she couldn't imagine what it would be like to be seen, much less loved. Uh, She had resigned herself to being unloved and unlovable for the rest of her life. Her heart was deeply wounded, and her heart is what really needed the deepest kind of healing. She was afraid. Now, it seems counterintuitive, of course. Um, there's, there is some counter—it's it, not easy to understand, but there, with such woundedness, it's hard to show up and be seen with intimacy, even as good as that is. You know, you can imagine this woman, you know, she doesn't want Jesus to slow down. She wants Him to hurry along but away from her, right? Jairus is wanting him to hurry along toward him. Come to my daughter, right? This woman is saying, go away. You have other things to do. More important things, problems to solve. Go go figure out what's going on with this this man's daughter. Don't pay attention to me. And he, but Jesus insists on not just healing her in this moment, but, but asking, where did she go? Where did she, okay, who was this? He insisted on calling her out into an intimate relationship because he knew that that's what she needed, as hard as that was for her to show up. And when we take that risk to show up and tell Jesus the whole truth, in other words, not present Him a fake version of ourselves, a more religious version of ourselves, but really show up in all the mess and the fear that that involves, the real you when the real you shows up, Jesus looks at you and says, daughter, son, you're in my family. He's not just content to to fix our problems, but to call us into relationship in His family. So, the fourth principle is that Jesus loves us too much to let us use Him as a cosmic vending machine. He slows everything down to give us His full undivided attention which is, at the same time, awesome and terrifying, right? He gives us His full attention. He tenderly calls calls the real you to show up so you can have an intimate, life-giving relationship with Him. And so, we've seen the urgent request and Jesus' slow response. He slowed down for Jairus, which made him feel anxious. He slowed down for the woman, which made her feel exposed. And we kind of get the sneaking suspicion that this is what they needed. They needed Jesus' slowness for their own good. They just couldn't see it at that time. You know, when we encounter Jesus in times like this where we're just confused what's going on, we always get more than we bargained for. We get more grace than we ever thought we would. And God is not content to let us use Him. He's going to call us to relate in deep, deep ways. So, let's look at the surprising outcome of Jesus' slowness in the story. So, he's, they're all now at Jairus' house. Verse 37, he did not let anyone follow him into the house except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now, some, some uh, critical scholars look at this and say, okay, 
this wasn't really a resurrection. She wasn't really dead. She just needed to be resuscitated, or maybe she was in a coma. She wasn't really dead. Look at what Jesus says. She's not dead but asleep. But clearly in the story, she's dead. They had hired these professional mourners to come and, 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 and cry and to represent the emotion of the moment. They, they were all falling apart, and they were laughing at Jesus when he said she's asleep as if that's ridiculous. Okay, so this girl is clearly uh, gone. So what is Jesus doing here by calling her death sleep? In a sense, he's, he's saying, he's calling the people that are with him to come next to him and, and see what he sees. See through his lens. I was uh, sitting on our couch in our living room, and from, from that vantage point, we could kind of see out the back window and sort of see the fence and the power lines behind our house. And I happened to see one of the two hawks that we have around our house. I guess they take care of all our mice and rodents and things like that. Uh, but these are beautiful birds. Um, and so, hey, boys, come here. And so I called them over to where I was because they couldn't see the hawk on the power line from where they were. So they come, come to where I am. And then, you know, I brought Rylan in front of me, okay, kind of pointing aside a little bit. Okay, follow my, you know, but they couldn't see it. It was right between those little branches, you know. And, uh, and so then the hawk flew off as, oh, there it is, you know. This is what Jesus is doing. We see death as final, as irreversible. We know that there's life on the other side, but it's just so abstract for us. Uh, we tend to think of our, of our earthly life as, uh, even though we know better in our theology, we, kn- we think of it like it's our whole life. And we kind of expect all of heaven and all of glory and all of the right things to sort of just show up in that lifespan. And we, we impose this and we, we have that perspective of death is final and that's the last shot and there's loss there. There's very real loss. And so what Jesus is doing, he's saying, come here, I want you to see what I see. And so from Jesus's perspective, he's the king of kings and lord of lords and death is like sleep to him. So the fifth principle is that The closer we get to Jesus, the more we see our lives and our stories as He sees them from the eternal perspective. And this really does help us to to trust Him, even when He is being slow, you know, from our perspective. But we can see more of His perspective. Verse 40, after He put everybody out, He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with Him and went into where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to, tell, to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. He, he gets really intimate here, just like he had done with the woman, kind of calling her out and relating and communicating and, and seeing her face to face. He didn't want a show. He wasn't there to appease the masses and so he, he narrowed it down to mom and dad and his, and his closest disciples, and he gets intimate. Notice how tenderly he treats this girl. He doesn't do what the magicians and the sorcerers of that ancient world would do with the incantations and the potions and the smoke and the whatever else. He simply takes her by the hand, and he says the simple phrase, Talitha kum. And it's difficult to translate this into English. Uh, there, you know, you see it as little girl, and that's true, but that's a little more clinical than it really is, because what he's saying in that Aramaic language 
is something like, honey, uh, sweetheart, it's time to get up now. And so he's speaking to her as a mom or a dad would do on a bright Saturday morning. And the kids are sleeping in and, all right, sweetheart, time to, time to get up. And Jesus lifts this girl from the realms of death with a simple, loving, endearing statement. Honey, it's time to get up. And she gets up. She starts walking around. And can you imagine how astonished these people were to see this? But even then, Jesus, his job is not done. That wasn't the point. He directs their attention still to the little girl, and he says, she's hungry. Give her something to eat. The sixth principle is Jesus is so powerful that he sees death as sleep and resurrection as a parent's morning greeting. Jesus uses the subtlety of his power to serve and love others rather than entertain the masses. Don't we serve a good God? He is so good. I want to kind of zoom out for a moment and look at the bigger picture. This story with Jairus and this little girl and, and the woman who came is like a little microcosm of the big story of the world, and it's a story of our lives as well. You know, when Jesus came the first time in the first advent, there's all these expectations, and there's, you know, he's demonstrating his kingly power over all these domains, especially in the Gospel of Mark. You see, he can command the winds and waves to calm down, and, and they're, they're still, he has, he has total command over the created order. He has command over the spiritual order, uh, exercising demons out of people. He has command over the physical order, healing people, and he even has command over death itself. He is the king. And um, as the story of who Jesus is is beginning to unfold in his first coming, the disciples or, you know, the Jews of that day who, be, who were believing in him, seeing him as the Messiah, started having expectations of him. Okay, all right, here he is. He's demonstrated that he's king. Okay, he's our Savior. He's our Messiah. Now, we want him to charge into Jerusalem, you know, kick out all the bad guys, sit up on his throne, and rule and reign, usher in his whole kingdom all at once, where glory is there, and there's no more sin or death. They wanted him to fix it all now, right? And Jesus slows down. Now, what about our own story? If you're a believer in Jesus, there was a time when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this. Um, We were like the woman, the living dead. Uh, We were living for ourselves, self at the center, on the throne of our hearts. But on the cross, our sin touched Jesus, and He became unclean. Jesus took our sins upon Himself, and and then He was judged by God's law as if He was the sinner. And so he literally took our place in the punishment because of our sins. And so he was made weak and power, just like in the story. Remember the story? The the woman touched him and power went out from him. He was made weak so we could be strong. And when he died on the cross, do you remember the power that happened? There was earthquakes and there was darkness in the sky. There was all kinds of physical representations of power leaving Jesus, the temple curtain, tore from top to bottom, representing access to God through Jesus. 
And so power left him so that we could have access, that we could have life. He lost his, his blood. He lost his friends. He was all alone. And he even lost the favor of God the Father because all of our sins were placed on him and he was rejected. He was rejected so that we could have life and be accepted in the family of God. And then, I, you know, I love, I love Pentecost Sunday, right? And talking about the, the application of the gospel to the church and to our individual lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are dead in our transgressions and sins, and we put our trust in Him, and His righteousness is given to us as a free gift. He gets our sin. He's punished for that. And we are treated as if we had obeyed everything that Jesus had done when He was here. And then the Holy Spirit applies that to our lives through the Holy the, the power of the Holy Spirit, where He gives us a new heart. He breathes life into our dead hearts, and He calls us to awake. I say to you, get up. And He does that through the Holy Spirit. Now, we're saved. If you have your, your trust in Christ, this is what has happened to you. But we know that even as Christians, we still struggle and we suffer. Things happen, and it's really difficult. I just want to give you two closing passages that hopefully can give you some encouragement. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so our final principle is that what we think of God's, what we think of as God's slowness is actually God's way of saving us and maturing us and redeeming the world for His glory and our good. And the final passage I want to give to you as we close out is, it's an awesome passage, guys, because it's so cosmic in scale. Watch this. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Hang in there, friends. God is on the throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we admit that we often can um, just feel the, the pain of this world, sometimes slowly and over a long period of time, and other times it just hits us in the face. And often we, um, we do put ourselves on the throne and, and try to sort of take over. Uh, it can show up in our relationships where we try to be other people's Holy Spirit for them, um, just can be in our own uh, despair or cynicism, or we just withdraw from you. Um, God, we can easily blame you and not in, in our confusion and lack of understanding, we oftentimes just, um, we don't trust you. And so I pray that you would fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit to uh, not to, not just um, show us a better way to live or a better way to trust, but actually give us a trusting heart, uh, to give us that ability by your grace to reach out to you, to touch your garment, to trust you in the trauma. And Father, whatever is going on in our lives right now, wherever the pain is felt, Lord, thank you that you're there 
if we would reach out to you, if we would trust you. Help us to see this bigger picture and find joy and not minimize our pain, but find joy in it because you're there. Lord, uh, as we go from here, help us to be full of the Holy Spirit um, in this crazy world we live in, this very difficult world, but you are so good and you know what's going on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.